So today, we're, we're wrapping up this series talking about that ugly thing inside of us that prevents us from seeing the obvious, what we talked about last week, prevents us from seeing the writing on the wall. It prevents us from acknowledging things we need to acknowledge. It keeps us from admitting all of those things that you and I, that everybody else can see we should admit, but we are having a hard time admitting. Everybody else can see that we need to admit, or we need to fix, or we need to change, or we need to say we're sorry, or we need to initiate something, or listen, or we need to come off our high horse, or we need to humble ourselves, whatever the case may be. Others see it, but we don't see it. We're talking about pride. It's our final week. We're going to talk about it. And I remind you once again, this ugly part of pride, it shuts us in. And when it does that, it shuts God out of our lives and it shuts other people out of our lives. And ultimately, that leads us to a place internally. It may not be external, but internally. It gets us to a place of isolation. It gets us to a place of loneliness. So today, what we're going to do to finish this series off is we're going to dig into what I hope will be the core of who you are, or part of the core of who you are. And so I'm hoping as we go in there that you will allow the Holy Spirit to do some real heart surgery in your life today. In fact, you might even pause right now and just pray, say, Holy Spirit, speak to me and do some heart surgery. You can do that as I'm talking. Uh, What I want to do today is I want to speak to the part of us that has an appetite for known as an appetite for being known, the part of us that wants to be known by somebody and or to be known for something. You see, here's the reality that every single one of us here this morning, me included, we all want to be known for something, right? We all have an audience, for example, we all have an audience in mind when we wake up in the morning and we get dressed, We all have an audience in mind when we go to work. We all have an audience in mind in our neighborhood, in our school, or whatever it is. All of us, we want to be known for something, and we want to be known by somebody. We want to be friended, right? We want to be followed. We want to be liked. We want to be mentioned. I mean, some people, you know, you'll text your friends and you'll say, hey, you got to go on Instagram and like my picture. You know, I only need three more likes and stuff, right? And some of you are like, yes, I got to get those likes. Others of you say, I can't relate to that. (laughs) Well, there's a column for the rest of you. We all want to be recognized, admired. We want to be sought after, accepted, appreciated. And we don't want to admit this, but we want to be envied. That's why we bought the car. It's why we bought the house. It's why we bought the clothes. You know, we want to be accepted, uh, admired, recognized, appreciated. It's why, you know, ladies, sometimes when your husband heads out the door, you kind of grab him and say, "Uh, honey, hey, uh, that doesn't really match, you know, what you're wearing. There's something in all of us that we want people on some level to like us, to appreciate us, to maybe even envy us. And so before long, eventually, our desire to be known, our desire to get to that point of being known and and being appreciated, that gets us in trouble. That gets us to the point where 
pride steps in and it'll shut God out and it'll shut others out. Now, here's a question. Where does this desire to be known, to be appreciated, to, to want attention, to receive applause, where did that focus that we have, where did it start? I think most of us know this. It starts just back when we were kids, right? That's where it all started. Uh, uh, my oldest son, Kobe, when he was a little kid, he used to play a game that he called Get Mountain. And Get Mountain was a name he made up. We still to this day have no idea what it is. But Get Mountain was a game he created, and he would take those steps, you know, those workout steps that you would use, and he'd put up a couple blocks and put up the step, and he would step up on it, and he'd get up on that. And, he, and then he'd say to all of us, no matter what we were doing, he'd say, all right, everybody, all eyes on me. And so we'd have to stop and, and you know, pay attention. And, and, and then he would say, we'd sit there, and I'd sit in my couch, and I've told this story years ago, but I'd sit there and, and, and I'd kind of be paying attention, but kind of not, right? And so I wasn't looking at him. And so he would literally see that, and he could see my attention wasn't on him. And he'd look at me and say, Dad, look at me. Look at me. You've had that with your own kids if you have kids, right? They say, Daddy, watch this. Mommy, watch this. And they want you to watch the same thing over and over and over again. Right? What is that? It's that thing inside of us that wants to be known, that wants to be approved by people, that wants to be accepted, that we want to receive the applause from. As you get older, it changes a little bit. Maybe you get into you know, your teenage years, and if you're dating someone, or maybe you remember this, and maybe you played sports, and you, you wanted your boyfriend or girlfriend to come out watch you play sports. And, and, and if you remember this, right, they would come out and finally watch you. And you're playing your game, but what would you constantly do? You'd look over to see if they were watching you or just paying attention to their friends or their phone, right? Right? Some of you are like, no, I never did that. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you better believe you did. As adults, we still want the applause, Maybe it's from our spouse. We're trying to win their affection or their approval. Maybe it's your boss, or maybe you live for the applause of your children. To some extent, we all live, we all secretly seek out the applause, the appreciation, the approval of somebody. But it has the potential to get us in trouble because it's an appetite, what we're talking about. It's, an, it's the appetite for known, or the appetite for being known. And here at LifePoint, we've talked about this appetite conversation before. Here's what we know about appetites. An appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. In fact, the more you feed it an appetite, the more it actually grows. See, it's very rare, let me illustrate, it's very rare for you or I to say, you know what, I'll just have one cookie. <laughs> right? It's very rare for us to say, I'll just have, you know, one fan, or one helping, or, or one sip. Once we taste it, whatever it is, we then want more. It's the same with our stuff. We never say, if I can just get that one thing, I will be fully satisfied and I will never want again. Actually, guys do say that if they're married to their spouse. If I can just get that one TV, I'll never ask for one again. Now I was thinking about this, and I remember saying that back when I first got married. And I thought, I was like, I'm going to, Heather, if, honey, if I can just get that 20-inch television, I'll never ask for another one again. And so we got it. 
And then later on down the road, it was, I was like, well, because it's an appetite. It wasn't fully and finally satisfied and other stuff's out there. And then I said, honey, this will be the last one I asked for. I want to get that 36-inch TV. Now, does anybody remember the 36-inch t- tube TV was the largest tube TV? You remember that? It was a 20,000 pounds. took 10 people to move it. You remember that? And I thought that was it until I moved to Elk Grove. <laughs> and before the recession, and all of you were buying things, and I was like, oh, my goodness, and I'm looking at that dinosaur and all that. So I called Nate up, and I'm like, hey, this will be my last time I ask for something. Can you help me install my new 58-inch TV? It'll be the last one I ask for. I'll never want one again. But an appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. And so it's been 10 or so years now. And I go to your house. <laughs> and I don't say anything to you, but I'm staring at your 75, 80-inch TV <laughs> on that wall. And I'm thinking about mine that has like a 20-inch bezel around it. You know, it's like an early... Ad- I'm going, oh. And I'll bet nobody can relate to what I'm talking about. <laughs> We've all been there. It's the same with social media, right? The more friends and fans and followers you have, the more you want. You'll never have too many followers. You'll never say in life, you know, well, well, well I, I don't want to ever see my name in print. You'll never say, I don't want to be recognized for my hard work. No one here is going to say, I never want my kids or grandkids to appreciate me. You'll never say, I don't feel like anybody is ever willing to thank me. No, it's in you. It's in me to be recognized, to be known. Now, some of us might pretend humility in this area, but that's what it is. Because the reality, it's in us. It's an appetite for being known. And here's the tension that sets up our story this morning. Whatever you want to be known for at work, or at home, or as a parent, whatever you want to be known for in culture or in school, there's no amount of known that's going to fill up your, you know, your known bucket. There's none. Why? It's a bottomless pit. It's an appetite. It's never fully and finally satisfied. And that's kind of why this is so closely linked to pride. So here's what it means. It means because this being known, being appreciated, received, accepted, because it's an appetite, you and I are actually constantly on the quest for more. More recognition, more approval, more acceptance. You say, no, that's not true, pastor, that's not true. Maybe not in every area, but every single one of us here have one or two areas for us that we've decided is important. And whatever you have decided with your grid of life and the way you view life, whatever you have decided or I have decided is important to us, that one or two areas is where we, have, we rest our sense of self-worth and self-esteem on that area. No, no, come on, Pastor, that's not true. Really, well, that's your pride talking is what that is. Because so, for some of us, we're too prideful to actually want to deal with this because of what's involved in the past and maybe the hurt or the pain or whatever. 
our appetite to be known, to be recognized, respected, and even envied is the insidious way that pride begins to take control and take over and try to get a grip and a hold on our life. And with that as a backdrop, who comes to our rescue but John the Baptist? Now, I've I got to have a question I need you to participate. If you have ever heard of John the Baptist before, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, so every single person that looks like, you can put your hands down. This is important. You just raised your hand. And here's my point. He's very well known. Right? You just all raised your hand. How many of you think 2,000 years from now, people are going to be talking about you somewhere? Okay, so the point is, he's well known. And so John the Baptist shows up, and he's going to help you and I. He's going to help us learn how to handle being known. He's going to help us learn how to manage it. He's going to help us to know how to have being known and live with that in a context where it can actually help us, where it can serve us, and where it doesn't take over our lives, and where it doesn't have to become what our identity is all about. We're going to get the parts of the story from, we're going to start in Mark 1 and then we're going to end in John. So if you haven't turned there yet, go to Mark 1, but also put your finger in John 1 or get ready to press on your phone John 1. And I want to start with Mark 1. And I want to look at verse 4. Notice what it says. It says that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. And when you hear the word wilderness, by the way, I mean, you and I, we think of the Sierras. Uh, for those of you who've been to Israel or know the landscape, it's not like the Sierras. Their wilderness is more like our Death Valley, okay? So it's the Judean desert is where he is. He's in the wilderness, the Judean desert. And he's preaching about baptism, and he's baptizing people. And by the way, as far as we know, John the Baptist is the first person who actually baptized other people. Okay, prior to John, people would, Jewish people would baptize themselves, part of the cleansing and the healing and all that that went on, but people didn't get baptized by somebody else. And so this is a really big deal, what John is doing. Mark 1, 4 again, pre, he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then this next statement is huge. I want to say a couple words out loud together. You did awesome last week. Let's do it again this week. We're Mark 1, verse 5 in the NIV version, it says this. Let's say the word together. The what? The, the whole Judean countryside and what? And all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, even assuming that this is literary hyperbole, it still means that thousands of people, multitudes of people, left Jerusalem and the Judean countryside surrounding Jerusalem, and they went down to see John in the desert down at the Jordan River. Now, you need to know, this isn't a quick trip down the street, down to the local market or something. To go see John from Jerusalem, from the Judean countryside, this is essentially a three-day trip. One day to travel down and get down there. One day to spend the day with John and with people and, and, and what he's talking about and seeing and maybe even getting baptized. And then another day to head on back up the hill. And the Bible says that everybody went to hear him. Everybody went through this three-day process, which means John is very well known. He has lots of likes. He has lots of followers, if you will. Now look at verse 15. John, oh, let me jump ahead now. John chapter 1. 
John chapter 1. So flip over a couple books to John 1. And it says this, starting in verse 15, it says this. It says, John testified concerning him. And now he's talking about Jesus. And he cried, John 1.15, he cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about. Now, for anybody in this room who's ever said, Pastor Chris, I think your sermons sometimes get a little confusing. Well, check this out. This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And they're all like, oh, what did you just say? Now, you and I, we're good with that because we, in hindsight, know he's talking about who? We're in church, easy answer. Who's he talking about? Jesus, right? So he's talking about Jesus. But they didn't know that at the time. And he says, look, the one who comes after me, you haven't seen him yet, but he's greater than me because he actually existed before me. Verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but freely confessed. See, the people are sent from Jerusalem and they want to know, who are you? What are you about? Are you the Messiah? People have been waiting a long, long time for for the Messiah, the Savior, to come and save them. And so there was this sense of, there's a spirit of revolution that was stirring in the air. And they're asking, are you our Savior? Are you our Messiah? But before they could actually get that question out, he actually tells them the answer, verse 20, I'm not the Messiah. Verse 21, so they ask him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And and what's he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, it told us, Malachi told us that when God got ready to do something special, something new again, amongst the people of Israel, he'd been silent for like 400 years. But when that day came that God was going to do something again, God would raise up a prophet like Elijah like the prophet Elijah, and they all knew who that was. And so there was this sense that people were wondering, you know, is Elijah going to be reincarnated? Is it going to be someone who's like him? Is he going to come back from the dead? And they're, so they're like, okay, so are you this Elijah guy that Malachi's talking about? John chapter 1, verse 21, and he said, I am not. And then they said, are you the prophet? He answered, no. And then verse 22, and finally they said, okay, well, then who are you? What do you say about yourself? You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You've got this huge crowd here. We're all, we all came out to see you. We want to know, who are you? And you need to understand, here's his big moment. Here's his opportunity to be known even more. Here's where he gets to say, I am John the, you know, and then whatever he would say. It's his moment where all eyes are on him. He's playing Get Mountain here, right? Look at me. Who are you? Verse 23, John chapter 1. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Who are you, John? Well, I'm a road sign. I'm a directional marker. I've attracted all of you to me so that I can point you to somebody else. I'm here to draw a crowd and I'll do whatever it takes to draw a crowd so I can point you all in the direction of the one who came after me but was before me and who will surpass me. Verse 24. Now the Pharisees who had been sent. Quick pause. This is just Chris's weird sixth sense of humor. I look at that verse, and that's a polite way of saying a couple Pharisees got gypped because it's a three-day journey, right? 
and the old Pharisees, the old dudes are like, I'm not traveling three days. And so let's get like the rookie Pharisees. Let's get the new guys. You guys go down. Now, the Phar- it doesn't say the Pharisees who wanted to go. It says the Pharisees who had been sent. Again, Chris is weird humor, but I, I see that actually throughout the Bible. And, and so you got some guys here who I'm guessing maybe didn't even want to be there, but, but they've been sent, right? Somebody sent them, verse 25. Question John and said, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John's like, well, you haven't seen anything yet. Look at verse 26. If you think that's something, here's what he says. Well, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you don't even know. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You know what that means? He says, I am not even worthy to be this person who's come. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. That's how amazing he is. You see this crowd that I've drawn, all of these people who are here coming to see me. I'm super known. I have followers. I have fans. Everybody's coming in to see me from all walks of life. And you guys are coming, and you're walking, and you're spending the night, and you're camping out. You think I'm something? Wait till he comes. I'm the intro act. Okay, I, I'm, just the, I'm just round one. Wait till the real deal shows up, the main stage. He's going to be amazing. Verse 29, the next day, and so this is right after this encounter with all these guys from Jerusalem, you know, these rookie Pharisees have been sent out. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look. John's like, hey guys, everybody, all my fans, all my followers, all you guys who've been following me, can I have your undivided attention? Look the Lamb of God. And then he says this famous line that I think some of us know here. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reason I'm so well known, John is saying, the reason I have all of you here today is because I want to point you all to him. Verse 35. The next day, John was there again. So he's at the same place. He's just said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's still in the same place, notice what it says, with two of his disciples. See, Jesus had followers, disciples. John had his, you know, his close disciples as well. He's there with his two of his disciples, verse 36. When he saw Jesus passing by, and once again, because John's role, John understands who he is, his job, you know, he quoted Isaiah. John's job, he said to his guys, who are his closest followers, he said this, look, and they looked, the Lamb of God. Same thing, he said the same thing. But this time, something interesting happens. Look at verse 37. It says this, and we're going to say a word again together. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed who? They followed Jesus. You know what that meant? It meant they unfollowed John. Anybody here ever been unfollowed before? How's it feel? You're like, what? You know, that's when, you know, forget this pride conversation. What? You're going to unfollow me? How could you not? You don't like me anymore? You know, we get angry, don't we? How could someone do that to me? They don't like me? They're like, hey, John, it's been real. It's been great. We've loved following you. But if that's the guy you're telling us we should be following, hey, we love you, John, but, but we're out of here. Later. You need to understand. John is now losing his core group. He has been gathering this crowd, these followers, 
And now he's pointing them all to Jesus. And people are responding to John and they're going to Jesus. And he's losing this core group of people. And it doesn't bother him, but it bothers some of his followers. So jump ahead to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. You know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, have eternal life. But if you go on, there's another incredible verse here. And it tells us in John 3.26, it says that his followers, that they came to John. They're like, oh man, we're, we're nervous about John. We're worried about John. Hey, are you okay, Johnny boy? Uh, uh, we're concerned for you. You know, you're losing all your followers. You're losing momentum here. We got to get you some more followers. Verse 26, they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man, and he's talking about Jesus, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified, look, he's even baptized. It doesn't say even. Look, he is baptizing. John, this isn't good. I mean, you're the one who invented this cool new baptism. I mean, you're John, what is his name? John what? The Baptist. I mean, he's got this great title. He's Jesus the He doesn't even have a title. I mean, you're it. We need to up our game. We need to come up with a new plan, a new business strategy, a new model. And somebody speaks up, hey, let's go the portable baptistry route. We'll get closer to Jerusalem. They don't come three days away, and then, you know, I don't think it happened. Well, actually, I do do think somebody probably came up with that idea. Um, Bible doesn't tell us that's Chris's, like, that's first Christ. Chapter 4, um, I'm mocking myself. Don't write me emails saying you're in the Bible. No. If you're new, you're like, oh, everybody else got it. John three twenty six. Jesus is baptizing, and everybody's going to him. And John's cool with it he knows why he's there to this john replied and i, I need uh, a lot of you you know some of you take notes and i that's great i wish you would all would so you can kind of go back and go over what god teaches you but if you don't take notes can you maybe take these notes right now what we're about to talk about here is the reason we're here today you need to write it down it needs to be somewhere where you can see it because this is a game changer this next statement by john will allow you to have an infinite number of followers, fans, and friends, but it'll help make sure it never goes to your head. It'll help make sure you're never in that relationship with that ugly side of pride. This next statement's going to help prepare us for the day when we have fewer friends, fewer followers, and fewer fans. It's going to help us for that day when the new kid on the block arrives. The prettier one, the smarter one, the more talented one. The one who makes your sales figures look like you just started. This is the idea that prepares us for the day when we're not the star, when we're not on stage anymore, because a day is coming when our better days are behind us. This is what's going to help us from clinging to and grasping to and trying to hold on to whatever it is we're trying to cling and grasp and hold on to, it'll help us with that. You ready? Because this is unbelievable. They're like, John, you're losing it. You're losing the crowd. You're losing momentum. And we got your back. We want to help you. 
We want to figure something out. We got we to get the, you know, the mojo going again. John 3.27, to this John replied, and I love this, a person can receive only what is given them from where? Heaven. Not from myself, but from heaven. John is saying, guys, look, all this fame, all this fortune, all this drawing a crowd, where do you think it came from? It, It came not from me, It came from heaven, from our heavenly Father. So you know what that means? And it means this for you and I. It means that whatever we have been given, and we like to say with our three T's, our time, our talent, our treasure, when God puts something in your hand, all credit goes to God. When God takes something out of your hand, all credit goes to God and you don't worry. Because he gave it to you in the first part. We all love, and it preaches well, the first part. Whatever you have in your hand, all glory goes to God. And it preaches well, and you love to say amen, and we like that part. What about the second part? It all came from him, which means he can take it, remove it, for a time, for a season, for the rest of your life. And John's like, he's taking it from me. And I'm good. And I'm not going to freak out like all you followers of mine. I'm good with this. Why? I already dealt with pride. I already broke up with it a long time ago. See, John knew that whatever he had was temporary. John knew that this being known, this knownness, this having... It's all about stewardship. It's all a gift from God. And John's like, I'm not going to ever make the mistake of thinking for a moment that it's about me or for me or what I have done. And if you were here the last couple weeks, some of what I just said should sound familiar. Remember with Nebuchadnezzar? And you remember what God said to him three different times that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth? and gives them to anyone he wishes. You remember that? You remember that last week with Belshazzar? He learned that lesson as well. It was a harder lesson to him to learn than Belshazzar because Cyrus the Great came in, and he learned the lesson that moment, and then boom, he was gone. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. John goes on. Look at verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but sent ahead of him. In other words, I've been telling you the entire time that I'm actually here to make him known. So if he becomes more known than me, why should that ever bother me? And then John says this line that, it's that famous line, it's the line that some of us maybe even have memorized. John chapter 3, verse 30. It's a verse, I, it's really simple, it's a verse I encourage you to know. And John looked at the people, looked at his disciples, looked at everybody, said all my knownness, all of my, you know, being loved and appreciated and accepted and received and recognized, all of that, you know what? John chapter 3, verse 30. He must become greater. I must become what? Less. That's a hard statement. Because a lot of us are cool with somebody else being greater. We just want to maintain whatever we have right? 
Nobody, nobody wants to downgrade or downsize. Oh, yeah, I'm good with that. Okay, go grab your computer from 10 years ago and pull it out. You want to use that? You want to downgrade? Nobody. This was huge. He must become greater. Amen. But I must become less. That's called get out of here, pride. I want nothing to do with you. John understood. My life is about making him known. So what does this mean for you and I as Jesus followers? Well, it simply means this. Whatever you are known for, for however long you are known for it, it's just a means to an end to make him known. Whatever you have, it's not about you. The reason you are known, the reason you have, the reason you've been given, the reason you have the time, the talent, the treasure, whatever it is, is to make him known. And so the bottom line, and it's not meant to be a cliche phrase, I hope it isn't in your spirit, to survive our appetite for known and being known and being recognized and wanting to be you know, loved and appreciated and all of that, is just to remember who it's from and who it's for. Whatever you have, remember who it's from and who it's for. Whatever ability you have, whatever ability to sing, to speak, the ability to sell, the ability to relate to others. Whoever made you, who made you beautiful, who gave you that personality, who allowed you to be born where you were born at the time you were born, who placed all of that in your hands? Almighty God. So all that I have, all that you have, is to make him known. Another way to say it is our known is for his renown. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 8 says this, Your name, God, and your renown are the desires of our hearts. Anybody know who the quarterback of the Oakland Raiders is? Derek Carr, right? Not David Carr. I said David Carr first service. That's why I asked you. I didn't remember. Derek Carr, right? Is that who it is? Okay. Derek Carr. Well, he grew up in church and was, you know, believe in God, love God, so to speak. And I've been reading more about his story. Maybe some of you know some of his story. It's actually pretty powerful. And as I thought about this idea of our known is for his renown, what I have is for his glory, I kind of did a little more research into his story. It's an incredible story, at least to me it is. And he was making bad choices in high school and even into college, and he said, I was a different kid on Sunday morning than I was, you know, on Friday night and Saturday night. He was living a facade. He enrolled at, uh, you know, at Fres uh, Fresno State, wanted to compete as a freshman, and he was like, hey, God didn't allow me to, to move forward because I wasn't ready to handle it because he knew that he wasn't going to give his knownness to God. He knew that, and so God didn't even give it to him. And he said this, Christ became real to me when my wife, Heather, who was just a friend at the time, this is in college, wrote me a letter that said, you're not the person I thought you were. How'd you like someone to say that about you? I won't ask you to say that to the person next to you. You're not the person I thought you were. He would say one thing and act the opposite, Heather recalls. He talked about God, how much he loved God. Then I would see him going to parties, hanging out with girls. I saw what he was doing, and it wasn't adding up, Heather says. Remember, it's hard to see pride in the mirror. So the mirror came to Carr 
and spoke to him. And if the mirror would speak to you and say, there's your pride, what are you going to do about it? We've asked you to break up with it. He had a choice to make. Do I break up with my pride or do I not? Here's what he said. I remember that moment. I felt so selfish, so arrogant, so cocky. So I got on my knees and I prayed. And here's his prayer to God. This is how he prayed. He said this. My life is yours. Forgive me of my sins. My heart is yours. Take it and do what you want with it. No matter what you tell me to do, the answer is yes. And I read that line. I was like, that's what we say all the time at LifePoint. Say yes, say yes, say yes. I was like, sweet. So if anybody knows Carr, can you ask him to come speak here at LifePoint? Um, it could be, you know, when he has a you know, Monday night game and he can come speak. Then he goes on. I, he says this. I've been sitting on the fence long enough. I don't want to do that anymore. How many of us have been sitting on the fence? We stay in this relationship with pride. And I love this. He says, the next week we had a game at Ole Miss. I got up in front of the whole team. I told them, guys, I've been calling myself a Christian. haven't been living it out. You guys know what I've been doing. I'm a Christian now. And I've asked God for his forgiveness. Now watch how I live my life. This is going to really be what a Christian is about. It was the greatest decision I ever made to give, my Lord, my, give him lordship of my life. He goes on, and, and you learn more about his story. Maybe some of you have read in the news the things he does, helps people on the side of the road. I mean, all sorts of stuff. He just, he's somebody who's saying, I want to take what I've been giving and make him known. He says this. This is what he says now. He says, I have strong faith in God. He's the reason I play football. He has given me this special talent. I want to use it to glorify him. I'm grateful for the opportunity to further his kingdom by sharing my faith on and off the football field. At any moment, any second, my football career could be taken away, but my faith and relationship with God will never be taken from me. I'm telling you, this is the perspective that enables us to break up with our pride. That everything that comes our way, every opportunity, all our knownness, and he's pretty popular now, and he really is, everything I can read and see and tell, and even watching his testimony online, he is trying to use that for the glory of God. His known is for his renown. And I love what just happened when he signed a $125 million contract. I think it's bigger than every contract you've ever signed. <laughs> right? When he signed a $125 million contract, they asked, what are you going to do with all your money? Here's what he said. The first thing I'll do is pay my tithe like I have since I was in college, Carr said Friday. To which I said, what church does he go to? <laughs> They're stoked. He's going to give his tenth. That won't change. I'll do that. I'm very thankful to have it, that it's in our, meaning him and his wife, in our hands because it's going to help people. He got it. He's living it. And so this week, you know what it means practically for you as we get ready to leave, as we finish off this series? It means that you wake up every single day and you go out and you do your best and you work hard and you hone your craft and you broaden your influence and you leverage your influence, you build your career, you write the blog, you write the letter, you write the book, you move mountains, you go, you try to change lives, be, you know, employee of the year, teacher of the year. But then at the end of the day, you lay your head down on your pillow and you listen for the applause of one, the applause of heaven. Because as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 says, we make it our goal to please him. 
You don't care what anybody else thinks because you've come to understand any knownness that I have is for his renown. His is the only applause that I care about. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to ask this question and you and God work on it. What area of your life do you need to begin living for his renown? What area of your life do you need to begin living for his renown? God, hear our prayers. Help people to answer this question. To say yes, Jesus, to your leading and then to follow through. Because God, I know when people in this room do that, we know, Heavenly Father, you will look at us and you will say, well done, you've broken up with your pride. So God, we live our lives for your renown. You've put everything in our hands and we give it as an honor to you. 